Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Damian Garde, recording from STAT's New York City Bureau. I'm Adam Feuerstein, coming to you from STAT's HQ in Boston. And I'm Rebecca Robbins, recording from STAT's San Francisco Outpost. It is Thursday, June 13th, and here's what's on the docket this week. The prominent biohacker Josiah Zayner is being investigated by California officials over an allegation that he practiced medicine without a license. Josiah is a colorful, outspoken guy, and he joins us to give us an update on his case. There might be yet another CRISPR patent dispute brewing in the pages of the world's biggest scientific journals. Stat senior science writer Sharon Bagley joins us to explain the latest developments in genome editing. And finally, this episode marks the triumphant return of the lightning round, in which we will keep Josiah Zayner around and pepper him with rapid-fire questions in which he must pick one of two options, and then we ask him to defend his position. But first, a word about Stat Plus. Enjoying the read out loud? You can get more exclusive coverage from Adam, Rebecca, Damien, and others at STAT with a STAT Plus subscription. STAT Plus delivers daily, market-moving coverage of biotech, pharma, and the life sciences. By subscribing today, you'll get access to exclusive stories from our award-winning team every day. And as a special thanks to you, our podcast listener, subscribe to STAT Plus now and enjoy 10% off your first year by using the code POD, P-O-D. We hope you enjoy Stat Plus, and thanks for being a Read Out Loud listener. First up, we're going to talk about biohacking and bring you the latest on an investigation by California state officials into whether one prominent biohacker's activities constitute practicing medicine without a license. Today is July 5th, 2016 at 12, 12 a.m., and this is day one of my experiment to genetically engineer myself. That biohacker is Josiah Zayner. He got his own biotech training the conventional way. He has a PhD in biochemistry and biophysics from the University of Chicago. But he's since become a leader in the biohacking community thanks to a series of self-experiments. Right. For example, one time he gave himself a fecal transplant in a hotel room. Another time he tried to genetically engineer cells in the skin of his hand so they would glow. And then, of course, there was the time that at a synthetic biology industry conference, he crispered himself on stage in front of an audience. This is a syringe. This will modify my muscle genes to give me bigger muscles. Ooh, didn't actually hurt that much. Josiah now runs the Odin, a small Oakland, California-based company that sells equipment for do-it-yourself science, including a $159 DIY CRISPR kit. So a few weeks ago, Josiah took to Instagram to break some news. He had received a letter from the California Department of Consumer Affairs saying that he was under investigation because of a complaint that had been made alleging that he had been practicing medicine without a license. Josiah denies that he has done any such thing, and we should note that it's a pretty serious accusation, one that can be penalized by up to three years of jail time and a $10,000 fine. So in that letter, the California officials summoned Josiah for an in-person interview. Josiah agreed to it, and the interview took place in Northern California on Tuesday of this week. Joining us now to give us an update on the situation is Josiah himself. Josiah, welcome to the podcast. Hey, what's up? To start out, how did your interview go with the state investigators? Oh, geez. I mean, it was pretty stressful. You can imagine any time that you have to sit down with some faceless people in the government, you're probably going to be a little nervous. I didn't find out till I was actually in the interview what was going on and who accused me or why I was being accused. The government is really messed up in these areas. The bureaucracy is just crazy. But they told me that a medical doctor, apparently, 
watch some of my YouTube videos and the other stuff I did and wrote a complaint to the Department of Consumer Affairs that I was practicing medicine without a license. You know, they asked me a lot of questions. They were really, really trying to find something wrong in the beginning, but they seemed to be pretty reasonable people. And after a while, you know, they were really receptive to what I am trying to do and educate people in genetic engineering and uh, educate people in the future of medicine and, and stuff like that. I don't know if they're going to bring charges against me. They didn't say they weren't or they were or anything like that, but it seemed like everything's going to be okay. So Josiah was explicitly given permission to bring a tape recorder to this interview, and he shared the audio with us. Here's a snippet of him defending himself to investigators. I have never directly you know, told anybody that they should follow in my footsteps or perform the experiments I did. I, I probably have clearly stated dozens of times that people shouldn't do the things I'm doing. They, they should consult with experts when thinking about doing these things. So Josiah, let's back up and talk about what you're being accused of here. In your Instagram post sharing the news that you're being investigated, you put forward a pretty extensive defense. Can you recap that defense for us? Here's the thing. If I wanted to do stupid shit, like I have plenty of opportunity. I have people email me all the time asking me for help. Recently on my YouTube, I, I did a little video about how to reverse engineer Zolgensma, the new $2.1 million gene therapy. Like, it's not hard to get this information and create these drugs for people if they have money to pay for it. And so there, I've had many opportunities to provide medical treatment, reasonable medical treatment to people, and I haven't. I've tried hard not to because I don't want to break the law. My goal is to help people and educate people, not to wind up in jail. And I want to do it in a way that provides people with the proper standard of care and proper protections that they need, even if it is somewhat biohackery or underground, you know? So about a year and a half ago, you did an interview with The Atlantic in which, you know, you seem to express some regret over the CRISPRing yourself on stage experiment that we mentioned earlier. And I think you said of the biohacker movement that there's no doubt in my mind that somebody is going to end up getting hurt eventually. Do you still feel this way? Is there a tinge of regret? Oh, yeah, man. I totally regret it. You know, because... That injection I did, I was trying to be an activist and be like, hey, look, we got these gene therapies like Zolgensma and Luxturna that are costing ridiculous amounts of money, right? Like, we need to do something. The system's going to break because to make these gene therapies, it doesn't cost that much money. And right now, I can go to a company and literally order the AAV, reverse engineer the gene sequence, which is really easy from the patents and you know, scientific papers in order for a fraction of the price. But nobody was doing anything about it, right? Gene therapies are so far behind when the technology is so powerful. And I injected myself to kind of make a statement and say, hey, look, we need to do something. We need to help people. If I can order this, you know, gene therapy online for under $500, there's maybe a little bit more we can do for people. And then, you know, there's a bunch of follow-up copycats People thought it might help get them famous or attention. They started injecting themselves. And there have been people who have injected themselves and had immune reactions. You know, this is all in the underground. So most people haven't heard about it or read about it. But it's like, ah, gosh, this isn't good. You know, people have been hurt. And I imagine it's just going to keep happening. 
So, Josiah, this isn't the first time you've found yourself at odds with regulators. The FDA took issue a few years ago when you sold a kit for making glow-in-the-dark alcohol. After you injected yourself with CRISPR, the FDA put out a statement saying that DIY kits for gene therapy are illegal. What do you think is the key philosophical difference between you and these regulators? And the German government came after me about two years ago because technically it's illegal to do genetic engineering in Germany, but it's not illegal for people to buy the kits we sell with DNA and like bacteria or yeast. They, you know, sent us letters asking us for the names of all the people so they could help protect these people against the harmful kits we were selling. And we were like, no, we're not giving you anybody's names because you can go to jail for doing genetic engineering in Germany. I think the thing that all these regulators and people don't understand, even with the CRISPR babies and stuff like that, it's like, you can't stop this stuff. You can't stop this technology. Taking me down isn't going to do anything, especially when I'm the one who's trying to promote doing things correctly and doing things safely. What you need to do is you need to set up a system that has guardrails. So Josiah, if you had the power to dream up totally new laws and regulations, what kind of biohacker self-experimentation would you allow? And what, if anything, would be off the table? You know, I'm not really into self-experimentation. Self-experimentation sucks, right? Like, who wants to inject themselves and take biopsies of themselves all the time? And, you know... Creating a whole governmental system surrounding medical regulation is very complex and, you know, it would take a lot of thought. But I think one thing that I really support is, you know, something that I call the right to hope. You know, there's so many people who are suffering from diseases and illnesses out there that they can't get access to anything, right? Drug companies rarely give access to drugs to people who are suffering and dying of diseases through right to try or through compassionate use because if somebody gets hurt or injured, then the stock price plummets, right? But what we need is we need a system where people can get access to this stuff. People can have medical doctors and scientists help them get access to this stuff because what's the other option? They just die, they just suffer and die. Every single person I've talked to who's suffering from a terminal illness, if you ask them, if you would take a drug that has a chance of killing you, but also has a chance of saving your life, would you do it? And every single one I've talked to has said yes. Well, let me ask you a follow-up on that. You mentioned Zolgensma before, for instance, and how it's technically feasible, basically to reverse engineer Zolgensma, which is treats a rare neuromuscular disease. It's fatal in a lot of people. I mean, now that Zolgensma is approved, you know, is it a good idea for patients to try or to get access to a reverse engineered Zolgensma, or do you think that that should be off the table? No, I mean, is I think it's going to happen. I think the system's going to break. Once a gene therapy comes out that can treat enough people that's not for a rare disease, and they're going to be trying to charge $2 million, people aren't going to get their insurance to approve it, and they're going to be flying to clinics in the Dominican Republic where somebody reverse engineered it, pirated the drug, right? You're going to see a lot of gene therapy piracy and uh, provided it to the person for a fraction of the price. And it's going to work because it already been through clinical trials, right? This isn't like doing experimental research on people. It's the same drug. Like It's just like burning a copy of Windows back in the day and giving it to somebody. So Josiah, you had your day in front of the state auditors of, of whatever, but what's next for you in this saga based on this kind of charge that you're dealing with? 
I don't know, man. Like, a lot of these things disappear into the government ether. I don't know if they got a file on me or whatever, and they're just waiting. The thing that sucks the most, and which I hate, is, like, the stuff I do lends itself to just more of this stuff happening. And I don't want to be a martyr, but all I can see in my future is, like, I better get a lawyer on retainer now for this stuff because it's only going to happen more and more often. I'd never given anybody a drug. I've never administered a drug to anybody except for weed. You know, maybe I've passed a joint to a friend or something. But, like, it just sucks. It's like, why me? Why me? You know, I'm just trying to help people. I'm just trying to educate people. We, we're running genetic engineering classes online now. We've had hundreds of people sign up. We're getting people jobs in biotech. And it's just like, ah. And have you hired a lawyer as you're dealing with this investigation? No, I know a lot of people who are lawyers and I've talked to them about it. You know, especially for this investigation, it's so niche and there's very few people who can actually understand what's going on. That it's just like, people are just like, you know, don't say anything, don't say anything incriminating. Don't go on a podcast. No, I mean, it's, it's totally fine. But like, lawyers are expensive. People don't realize that. Like, I'm not rich. You know, the Odin is a company and we're doing well, but like... It's not doing so well that I have tens and hundreds of thousands of dollars to throw around at lawyers. You know, it's so it's I'm just a normal person here trying to survive. So, Josiah, we were curious about one more thing. You posted a photo on Instagram yesterday when you were arriving for the interview with California investigators. You were wearing a Rage Against the Machine T-shirt. So was that the automatic first choice or was there a second choice T-shirt you were considering? (laughs) Yeah, the second choice t-shirt was actually the words, why always me? (laughs) (laughs) That's the Mario Balotelli shirt? Yeah, it's the Mario Balotelli shirt. (laughs) Nice catch. I love that. (laughs) You know, but it's just like uh, Rage Against the Machine, you know? you, I won't do what you tell me. And did the investigators comment on your shirt? (laughs) No, they they didn't comment on my shirt. Uh, I'm sure they probably looked at it and were just like, "Mm, this guy. (laughs) Thanks for your willingness to talk about the investigation and keep us posted. Yeah, I will. Next, we're going to talk about a pair of strikingly similar discoveries in the world of CRISPR genome editing. So the story involves so-called jumping genes, which, true to their name, are bits of genetic material that, somewhat mysteriously, jump around the genome. That made them seem like tantalizing tools that one could package with CRISPR, and that could be something that could perhaps make genome editing that much more precise than it is now. And that brings us to last week when CRISPR pioneer Feng Zhang published a paper in Science that describes how his lab turned those jumping genes into DNA delivery trucks. But then, if you open the latest issue of Nature, you'll find a paper on a fascinatingly similar discovery described by the lab of Samuel Sternberg at Columbia University. Joining us now to talk about these dueling discoveries is STAT's senior science writer, Sharon Bagley. Sharon, thanks for coming back to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So Sharon, just to get us started, scientists have known about the sort of breadcrumb trail to using jumping genes for CRISPR for some time, right? Yes, for several years. And when the general idea was first published, it really caught fire, as it were. And a number of labs from Cornell to Columbia to Boston and probably points even further away decided this would be a really cool thing to try to develop into another CRISPR tool. So it's been a very competitive area. 
So, Sharon, let's talk about that first paper, the one in science. What did uh, Fung's lab accomplish? So, yes, that came out of the Broad Institute here in Cambridge. And what they basically did was take transposons, the more sort of jargony name for jumping genes, and repurpose them for a job that CRISPR in its current form, is really, really bad at. So CRISPR is good at changing a single DNA letter. It's good at breaking DNA if you want to get rid of a gene that causes a disease, but there's another copy, a healthy copy of the gene, so it's fine to lose the bad one. But what CRISPR really struggles to do is to insert a whole bunch of DNA to repair a gene. And the way this is always described is it's easier to break something than to fix it. But guess what transposons are good at doing? They are great, in fact, it's their entire reason for being, at putting chunks of DNA into the genome. So what the the Zhang lab, et cetera, did was to take the transposons, hook them up to a guide RNA, which is the bloodhound that leads the whole thing to the right place in the genome, and get it to insert the DNA that they wanted to to test. This was all done just in E. coli in bacteria, so it's really, really early stages. But if this can be a way to insert repair DNA, it could be uh, really significant for the whole field of CRISPR therapeutics. And so, Sharon, tell us how what's described in the Nature paper from Columbia different from what Fung's lab did. So they used transposons from a different bacterium. They used a different enzyme to cut the DNA and to lead the repair DNA to its target. But fundamentally, it was also engineering transposons for this purpose. So again, this is a field that was, you know, sort of launched with a lot of excitement just a few years ago. And now we have two competing labs crossing the finish line within six days of each other, but therein lies a whole nother story. Well, so that was my next question. You know, six days for us as the public, but what's going on behind the scenes here? Like, do we know who might actually have been first? So my favorite thing to do with papers is to look at the dates that they were submitted to the journal and then the date that they were accepted. And that tells you a few things. If it's just a day or two, that tells you that there was not a whole lot of serious peer review. If it's a really long time, that tells you either that there was a problem with the paper or that the journal is just, you know, molasses slow at getting things out. So in the case of the Broad Institute paper, the one in science last week, the time from submission to acceptance was 25 days. So that's not a couple of days, but it is still lightning fast. The typical period for for that journal is months, not three weeks. So I asked the scientists what accounted for this really fast turnaround, and the answer was the peer reviewers just really liked the paper and saw how important it was. So fine. The Nature paper, the one that was published this week, took two and a half, three months to get accepted. So it was submitted earlier in March compared to May for the Broad Institute paper, yet it took longer to get published. So Sharon, as you pointed out on Twitter this week, Zhang and Sternberg say they filed patents on their work and each has affiliations with CRISPR companies. So could this end up being the next intellectual property fight in genome editing? Whenever you have IP and CRISPR in the same sentence, you can expect 
fireworks. So the short answer is we don't know because patent applications are not public immediately. So nobody outside those labs and those institutions knows exactly what the patents uh, are intended to cover. That said, there might be enough differences between the two. Again, the research was done in different organisms, slightly different enzymes, etc., that both could get their separate patents, um, in which case there will not be a fight at that level. But the question will be, which patent covers the more effective system, the more useful system, and therefore, which will be licensed? So will it be the Broad that's raking in the licensing fees or Columbia University? And that's something that we're not going to know for a number of years. So Sharon, what's the next step scientifically for this jumping gene technology? So one of the earlier papers, even before the ones that we're talking about, ended by saying something like, it has not escaped our notice that this could be used therapeutically. So that's what everybody is going to be waiting to see. Clearly, an experiment in E. coli bacteria um, is not going to be convincing in terms of the therapeutic possibilities. So the, the Zhang paper from the Broad Institute said that their next step, and probably they've already taken it but just haven't reported it, is to see if this system works in mammalian cells. There's every reason to think it will. So um, again, this is going to be a field... I think that's going to move pretty quickly and we'll very likely see just an avalanche of papers because other labs could well jump in as well. Sharon, thanks for joining us. Thanks, everyone. Next up, we're bringing back the lightning round. Josiah Zayner is going to join us again for this segment. Josiah, thanks for humoring us with this. Pumped. I'm ready to go. Josiah, here's uh, how this works. We're going to ask you a question in which you must pick uh, between one of two binary options. There will be no hedging or dodging of the question, and we'll let you explain your reasoning. You ready to play? I'm ready to go. Okay, first question. So when you shared the news about the investigation you're facing, we were intrigued to see you use Instagram specifically to do so, as opposed to, say, Twitter, where folks often share news. So you're on both social networks, but if you could only pick one to use for the rest of your life, which are you choosing? Twitter or Instagram? Oh, Instagram for sure. Instagram because it's like happy and fun and and cool and nice and everything. Like there's no bad stuff on Instagram. So in that same Instagram post sharing news of the investigation, you wrote about the stress you're facing, including the line, quote, damn it, I need some whiskey to calm down now, end quote. So we must know, are you a rye guy or a bourbon guy? Oh, bourbon for sure. You know, I like the little sweeter taste. If uh, I'm not going with a scotch whiskey, I'd probably drink a bullet bourbon. That's uh, my go-to. So, Josiah, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on the infamous Chinese scientist He Zhongkui, who crispered babies outside of the traditional constraints of the scientific system. In some ways, uh, that's not so different from the philosophy of some in the biohacking community. What do you think? Is He Zhongkui closer to a hero or a villain? A hero, I would say. I think that Western media has villainized him because he is Chinese and it's easy. But, you know, if it was like a scientist from the UK or a scientist from Canada or someplace like that, the headlines wouldn't have said like Canadian scientist. They probably would have just said scientist, right? But they all said Chinese scientist, like it's bad to be a Chinese scientist. And then there were stories about how he disappeared And we all know what disappear means when you're talking about somebody in China. But he just, like, stopped answering people's emails because he didn't want part of the drama. Okay, last Rage Against the Machine question. So the band was, of course, famous for its anti-establishment politics. 
But at the end of the day, they made their music for a major corporate record label. So would you ever do your science for a big pharma company? Yeah, the system has good things in it, right? The FDA works. They help protect people from getting drugs that are bad and harm them. Does that mean that the FDA can help everybody and the FDA is the only system we need? I think that answer is no. So Novartis, if you're out there listening, Josiah is ready. Yeah, call me up, you know. <laughs> I'm I'm here. Yeah, right, man. Can you imagine like this dude with all these piercings and dyed hair and a Rage Against the Machine shirt, <laughs> you know? I have Jay Bradner's email. I could connect you right now. <laughs> well, that was fun. Josiah, thanks for sticking around for the lightning round. No problem. does it for another episode of the read out loud thank you to heisen tempanado who produced this week's episode matthew Orr and Alyssa ambrose are our senior producers and rick burke is our executive producer and as always we'd love to hear from you tell us what you liked about this week's episode what you didn't like and which biohackers we should have on this podcast in the future you can do all of that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com and if you like what we do leave a review or rating on apple podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts See you next week.